This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're sitting down with Katrina Swift. Katrina, or Train to Her Friends, is a director and agronomist in her family's farming business, Kebby and Watson, with farms at Malungaloo and Tichburn near Parks. Train and her family operate a dry land farming operation, which has a huge diversity of crop types, including your regional staples like wheat and canola, but also summer crops, including mung beans and sorghum. In this episode, Treen talks to us about how the diversity of crops grown is a risk mitigation strategy, but also means that their operation is busy year round. While it has supplied some challenges, it has allowed them to reduce casual labour and utilise machinery and permanent staff more effectively. She shares with us some of her tips for growing summer crops in the Central West and highlights while they can be very profitable, they aren't for the faint-hearted. You'll also hear Treen talk about how utilising her business and banking background has influenced the family farm, with a focus on professionalism and safety in their business. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Advisor Rowan Leach caught up with Katrina for a chat around the kitchen table at Parks Plains. G'day listeners, today I'm with Treen Swift out at Nalungaloo. Treen, welcome to the Seeds for Success podcast. Thanks, Rowan. Great to be sitting around the kitchen table. <laughs> uh, Treen, could you just start off by giving me a bit of a rundown of your farm here at Parks Plains? Look, we're cropping with my family farm. I grew up at Tichburn in central west New South Wales, obviously, uh, south of Parks, and one of our blocks here is at Nalungaloo. Um, I'm farming with my parents, my brother, and my husband. That's everyone involved in the business? No. So my sister-in-law is also in the business, and then we have a number of fantastic employees. Big family operation? Uh, yeah, keeping us out of mischief. <laughs> so how's that dynamic working with family? So we've probably been here 120 years, or south of Parks, when my great-great-grandfather moved up from Victoria. So, yeah, multi-generational. Well, I find it a bit unique in my position where I've got a husband that's come back into our business, which doesn't happen that often. But, no, good fun. So it's got its challenges, but you work through those like any business. And so you've got the property at Tichburn here. Any other properties? No, so we're mainly spread west and south of parks. So, yeah, fairly close now, we had branched out to Ugarra, but we've consolidated back in one spot just because of logistical challenges. And so how many hectares have you got on those places? We've got about 4,000 arable hectares in the Kebby and Watson aggregation. And maybe talk me through your enterprise mix. Look, we're all dry land cropping, um, Rowan. We can grow up to 13 different crops at any time. So we're all about opportunity, keeping our rotations fairly consistent amongst, yeah, broadleaves, pulses, oil seeds and cereals. So 
just in terms of being able to mix it up and make sure that we're using the tools we can to reduce resistance and um, whilst remaining profitable. So we'll grow wheat, barley, canola, so the, the staples around here. We'll also throw in pulses such as chickpeas. We've doubled in lentils. We'll probably go back into them again. Field peas, we've had a double in cotton in the past, but we can't manage the the drift or chemical trespass with it um, in this area. Um, we've had challenges with rail and all sorts of things around that with a new enterprise in a new area. We also grow mung beans and sorghum over summer. We'll grow lupins as well. Fairly broad, broad range of crops, triticale for stock feed and for dairy, lots of different pies. That's a really diverse range of crops. And yeah, that comment you said about bringing a new crop into a new area, a lot of people have had that same challenge with particularly cotton being so sensitive to four Ds, haven't they? And it's a lot of things you just don't think of. So we have had to set up areas with rail, especially growing summer cropping. With ARTC, we've set up sensitive areas for spraying rail corridors, things that we just didn't know we'd have to venture into. So we're in an area where winter crop comes off just before Christmas. Everyone's in a hurry to get crop sprayed, to actually have some downtime, which is really important. So we're still working on getting drift like everyone in the state and we've just got to try and work with the tools we've get. We can grow cotton here and it'll be fantastic when we can, but just not yet. Lots of different crops. Which one's been maybe one of the more obscure or more interesting ones that you've dealt with? I love growing mung beans. They're one of my favourite crops. It's a challenge. It's not, they're not as specific with their growth stages as something like cotton that you can particularly work through. There's a lot of work growing mung beans this far south for starters and dry land. So there's a lot of challenges with what chemical we can and can't use on them. It's a food grade crop. And then what's our end uses for them as well. So really developing that market, hopefully. And everywhere we go in Asia, when I'm traveling, they're eating mung beans and we just don't eat them as much here, whether it's in your sweet and savory desserts. You probably have a pretty diverse soil type across your farms. So we're mainly um, sandy clay loams and we go into silty clay loams over here. So sandy clays, look, they're fantastic in a, in a wet year. We can get back on them. They do hold moisture at depth, so that's fantastic. For summer cropping, we can virtually crop most of the place as well, so that's good. These heavier crop types over here, they're also, it's just some diversity across the program. We have got acid soils. We've been working since about 94, 95 with Sydney Water Biosoil Program to um, with lime amended product initially. And now we, one of the few places that have got a hard stand, EPA registered to actually hold biosolid product. And then we use that as part of our fertiliser program with lime dist in at this time of year in front of cropping. You've talked pretty technically about crops and soil regimes there. Maybe you've tipped your hand already, but what uh, is your role within the business? I'm a director in our business, so in the family operation. I've got a banking background with NAB Bank, and then I also did a few years at Sydney Uni with Ag Science, so I've also got a strong agronomy. Well, not a strong agronomy, but I've got a strong agronomy <laughs> and that's the train and in the And that's the train going past, straight to Perth. <laughs> so, look, I've always had an interest in agronomy. I did a few years at Ag Science at Sydney Uni and, um, look, that's always been a passion. I went banking for a number of years. So my role in the business has probably reflected that. So 
when we started summer cropping, we really couldn't find anyone that was willing to take on the agronomy for it full time because that's the normal down season in this area at that point. So, and for this area, it's a little bit obscure. Go to Forbes, which is not far away, but that's all irrigated. So I took on the agronomy for the summer crops here and then, yeah, a bit of the general business management within the farm. Probably ag and agronomy have typically been very male-dominated industries. What's been your experience? It's been mixed. As I said, I started at Sydney Uni. I went to women's college and, look, it was all my ag group. It was lots of women. I may believe that you also went to uni with Neralee Brennan? I did. <laughs> so The voice of Seeds for Success. Yes, and there's actually grew up across the road from where I live now. So I've known Neralee for a long time. But I then went to Marcus Oldham down in Victoria for my third and fourth year and there was two women in my course. So it was a big change from Sydney Uni and that probably hasn't changed um, really since then. If you go into the service industries, there's a lot of women also in livestock but not so much in cropping and that probably reflects the difficulty to stay involved in cropping through your childbearing years and when you've got small children. It's not an enterprise that's very family-friendly. I know from experience from friends of mine in the industry and it's, it's hard to be a, a part-time agronomist working two or three days a week, which is what a lot of young mothers want to do, isn't it? It is and so we went down the track of getting au pairs when my children were really little so I could be out the door at 5 and 6 a.m. when bugs are out for checking and it was a bit cooler but that was a period of time. But when you're half an hour to town, it's you an hour of travel in the morning just to get back to the paddock by the time you drop off to daycare, often they don't do breakfast. There was just too many challenges in that. And then heavy machinery is not the best spot for small children. So everyone's different on how they take that. But we made the choice that we wouldn't have kids around tractors a lot um, when they're little. We live on a train line and there's just very little room for mistakes. And if people are if people are running tired, it only takes two seconds. So you've got a, a fairly strong focus on safety in the business then as well? Uh, we try to. So I think we've all got a duty of care to make sure that our family and our employees come home to their families safely every night. We're trying to put new things in place. Uh, last year I started bringing in Apple Watches if people have got their phone in a tractor and something happened when they're out checking a, a sewing rig or something, they can still make a call. Little things like that. It's becoming more challenging. We've got lots of challenges with a special activation precinct coming into parks with reduced Telstra service. So we've had to go to repeaters all of a sudden on a lot of our, our vehicles because our service has been reduced with parks growing. The radius of service has come back. So that provides challenges with safety but yeah we've put everyone through first aid and we're just in the process of building some silos and as part of that everyone's doing their working with heights training and yeah it's fantastic that we've got access to that training through TOCAL and other service providers. Farmers probably accused a lot of the time of being probably pretty fast and loose, especially with their own family members. But I guess when you've got other employees to think about, you just can't afford not to take those measures, can you? No, we can't. And we've got to value, like we have fantastic employees and we've got to value their time, their long-term employees. It's their career and they're skilled people. They've come from, they're qualified mechanics. Um, they've come from a professional background 
And if we want to retain those staff, we've got to try and upskill and provide that professional workplace for them. So where they have access to training and to safety. How many staff are you running at the moment? So we've got four at the moment. And what's your retention like? I know probably very busy during harvest and sowing. So they're four permanent staff. We just run with those four permanents. We don't actually bring in casuals usually during harvest and sowing. We just push through. We try and manage our, our shifts around workflow and we find that we've got better productivity without having to train up backpackers or casuals. And we just can't, with the detail in our machinery now, it's very hard to bring someone up to skill. We only get one chance at things like sewing. If we get it wrong, we don't get another go for another six months to 12 months. We've retained good staff. We've got some staff that have been with us over 10 years now and young staff. We value them. It'd probably be fairly unique in the cropping industry in not having any casual staff. Are you able to sort of have those full-time guys on because you've got such a diverse range of crops that you grow? Because we have the summer and winter cropping, we are virtually busy 12 months of the year. So that's our biggest challenge and probably our biggest challenge is making sure we do have downtime and structuring that in. We're still learning that because there isn't, isn't a definite downtime for us now. And now that we've got families, we've got kids in school and working around that shared load around school holidays and school holidays don't always work. Uh, this year we'll be sowing Easter holidays. So it provides challenges. So if it's dry, we won't be, but if it's wet, it's all hands on deck. That probably leads into my next topic really well. Maybe just a recap of the large scale ones that you do regularly. So we normally grow uh, sorghum and mung beans. Mung beans more when the season presents. Um, sorghum's grown on a long fallow. We've probably got about 1,300 hectares of sorghum in this year, which is a fairly big plant for us. It could have been a bit bigger, but we had significant damage with the floods in November. So some of the crop didn't actually get in. And then some crop we didn't, it started raining in April and didn't stop for us. So some of our winter crop didn't get in. So we left it out and then put it in for summer crop. So we're a little bit out of sequence there, but that would be a bigger area for us. We also grow mung beans on opportunity and yeah, they're all obviously export for human consumption. Um, we try and grow top grade if we can. So that's our usual program. What is your sequence? You've talked about your sequence. Look, we'll normally go in um, following something like biosol. We'll go into canola and then back into wheat and then potentially into a legume or barley. So just we'll throw in sorghum towards the end and then we might go back into canola and then disc it up again. It just varies. But it is fairly set in terms of we try not to grow a cereal followed by a cereal on cereal or wheat, barley, canola. We're just finding we're having too many issues with disease pushing up and we haven't got that pasture phase, which we might have to bring back in again to mix it up because nature's got a great way of working out systems. My husband did a Nuffield scholarship and we spent a bit of time with Dwayne Beck in the US looking at his systems and... Yeah, how to work around bugs and weeds and yeah his big thing at the time was make sure you've got a double break crop if you can in between so what have been some of the big challenges in the past few years <laughs> drought and then too much rain really and mice in between it's been a challenging five years so we got heavily impacted by mice in 2021 so sorghum was baited quite a lot aerially 
I've got two Springer Spaniels that are asleep underneath the table. I use them to find mouse holes when I was checking. Just as long as they're not finding the bait as yeah, well. Yeah, <laughs> no, no bait at that point. So I think mice are, are going to be an ongoing issue, especially when we haven't got stock in our system to eat that excess grain. Where other challenges, particularly last year, was any sort of weed control. So we really averaged an inch every week last year. Throughout winter, it rained every week, which we never thought we could blow out September with too much rain in October, but last year I think we did. So we've got some weed legacies, whether we couldn't get on crop last year and on fallows and also that have come down in floodwaters. So I think feathertop roads grass is going to be an ongoing challenge. Windmill grass is definitely a challenge that we've got to work through and general resistance we just need to pull into the toolbox and use some of these new technologies yep. rather what, than just relying on herbicides. What herbicide resistance are you fighting with at the moment? I think everyone's fighting in this area. We're, a lot of people are picking up glyphosate resistance. They're also picking up other group resistance. So it's fairly widespread. I think most people that think they haven't got it potentially do and you mightn't have it and then you get a flood and you've got it all of a sudden. So that's just the way we've got to keep on mixing it up with rotations rather than just going to the newest chemistry all the time. Use a bit of steel and we can't be purist. We went down the the purist road with minimum tillage and we've been burnt with frost and we've got challenges. Because your stubbles were too heavy? Stubbles are too heavy, especially in front of canola. Yep, you just don't get that. You've got the, I think it's ice nucleating bacteria that are found in WA. We noticed with a neighbour that had ploughed in front of his canola. He was across the fence. We'd kept all, we'd done the purest thing and kept our stubbles. He didn't get frosted and we did. So it gave us the the chance to delve deeper into that from there. So the Central West is fairly renowned for having hot, dry summers. In particular, this February just gone has been very hot and very dry. How have your summer crops fared this, this year? Summer cropping has been very challenging this year. We planted and then got a major flood three days later on country that in 60 years has never been flooded since we've owned it. We had some banking of water behind railway and railways gave. So we had water that would normally go down one creek system, actually go across country to another creek system and flood whole new areas. So we lost a whole sorghum plant there that had to be re-sown and lost a lot of topsoil nutrition and our pre-sowing herbicide. So this year's been a challenge. We've also not had any rain since virtually we planted. So we've had some pollen blasting. We did manage to get, we have a fairly varied sowing. So not all the crop is flowering. We don't get pollen blastable at one point. So look, it won't be anything fantastic. Last year we pulled up to eight tonnes off this year won't be anywhere near that. But last year was one of those seasons where you pinch yourself and you say, I won't, I probably won't see this again for a while. So, but we can do it. What are some strategies that you use to sort of minimise your risk in the summer cropping? So the main things is to not be flowering in those peak heat periods in January. So mung beans are a bit the same. So they're, if you grow a bit more of an indeterminate crop, it will have another go at flowering if you get the rainfall. But not necessarily. So it's very much we'll sow mung beans usually in late December, early January. Is that We won't go with the earlier spring plant usually. It's just been too hard in this area. 
Sorghum will actually plant usually in November and we'll probably push a bit later into December. We're just in the process of setting up a grain drying system on farm that will be then be able to, we won't be limited at the end of the season by drying down and getting our moisture down. And it also helps us manage sowing and harvest. If we can harvest a crop a little bit greener or when it's not quite at moisture or a bit later when we hit winter and we can get it off. So when are you aiming to harvest your sorghum? Probably in the next next month. So we'll by mid-April, we'll be wanting to have some of it off. Yeah, some of the later stuff won't be there, but it was delayed with soil dried out very quickly after the flood. It was too wet and then it was too dry. We don't normally have that challenge, but we did this year. And I think that's just a, the nature of everything just sort of baked after that flood. So growing maybe a risky summer crop in this mixed farming zone, what do you have to say to maybe people that put the blinkers on and don't want to know about it? We're trying something new. We're also trying to remain profitable. We're trying to grow food in a changing environment. We're getting more summer rainfall down here. Parks can get rainfall any month of the year. We're not really summer or winter dominant like we used to be. And I think the last 50 years of the 1900s was a lot more winter dominant but my career since 2000, we've been, yeah, spread throughout any time of the year. So we're, we're really trying to push the system. We've got new varieties. When we went to minimum tillage and control traffic and moisture retention, it opened up a whole, another whole box of moisture management for us and what we can do with that. So it means that we can grow a whole lot of different crops that we didn't think we'd ever be able to grow before. How long have you been doing this summer cropping thing? I think we started back in about 2006. And you haven't gone broke yet. so <laughs> Trying not to. <laughs> so sometimes you've got to go, well, this is our break crop too. So, and it's not going to be the most productive or profitable crop, but it's providing something in a rotation to manage challenging winter weeds over a fallow or giving us a chance for a long fellow to manage some summer weeds. But the main thing is just to keep our stubble up in front of those summer crops just so we don't, these red soils radiate a lot more sunlight and we're open to, yeah, a different system to what the norm, northern grey clacking or heavy uh, vertisols have. I know the GRDC sort of almost advocate in the northern half of the state that long fallow and sorghum break crop as a risk uh, management strategy. Have you got any comments on that? We will always have a long fallow just to get some moisture up in front, but it allows us to get on top of some of those challenging weeds like ryegrass where it does move. We've inherited some challenges in the 90s. We had a a great advisor called Alan Umbers and he gave us some really good, my father, some very good herbicide strategies and we didn't have ryegrass resistance early in the piece. So, but we've inherited some of that and some of it's probably generated as well. So by mixing it up with summer cropping, I'm hoping that we're going to hold it at bay and not hopefully improve as long as we don't get too much downstream and we can lift up our whole community and... Uh, hopefully people that do look across the fence go, well, maybe that'll work for us too. But summer cropping in this area is not for the faint-hearted. It's full on. It's 12 months of the year and you've really got to be, you need to have a good team around you 
and you need to be really probably another topic is probably you really need to be really careful to make sure you do have enough rest and you don't burn out. That was going to be my next question, but that's some really good advice for for people maybe thinking of dabbling in it. It's um, not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> my advice last year was few people were growing, looking at growing summer crops after the challenging not being able to plant last year and having to replant and still not getting great establishments was prior to putting that crop in, make sure you get away for a week because it's a long, hot summer of checking and keeping attention to details. Things happen faster with weeds and insects in summer. You need to be on the ball. You need to be able to pull out a spray rig to deal with heliothis or grasses straight after rainfall because they will just outcompete a crop within a few days. Earlier in the chat, you talked about your business structure and how you've got fairly defined roles within each member of the family? So we have a number of skill sets within our business and we are working towards definite defined roles. We're still on a part or journey to get to a very firm business structure around those defined roles and responsibilities, but we are working towards it. So I'm mainly responsible for um, summer cropping. My brother has an ag economics background and his passion has been grain marketing so he's in charge of grain marketing as well as operations. And my husband also shares that. So we have a fairly level structure. So my husband's actually been, so Mark's been pulled out for the last 12 months building a silo complex. But prior to that, he was in charge of getting crop up, very much the machinery operations management. He's got a strong skill set in business planning and working out business cases for machinery acquisition as well. And my sister-in-law, Karina, does a great job in the office and keeping accounts paid and keeping us all in check with where money goes and the day-to-day running of a business there. It's maybe not as conscious as each of your passions, really. It is. It's been an organic process. We've also started bringing a bit more structure in with our employees. They've got a lot of autonomy and we brought two new employees on in the last few years. So the two more established employees are mentoring the younger employees more and taking more autonomy and responsibility, managing their day-to-day activities. You're using terms like director or operations manager. Is that conscious and that aiming for a bit more professionalism? Potentially, but then we all get to have to fill out forms. We've all got to create something at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not really sure if I'm a farmer or a grain grower or what I am, but I think it just gives a little bit more. We need to move towards having a bit more rigour around our our roles and responsibilities. That can be a, a pitfall of having a flat structure, but also having the flat structure has given us a lot of freedom to try new things. I'm forever grateful my father has always encouraged us to get involved, go back to women in ag. Very few farmers out of the 80s encouraged their kids to come back into agriculture and I was very lucky that mine did after the challenges then. But I think we've been given the room to be able to make decisions to fail and to succeed and I'm very grateful for that. Trina, I've really enjoyed today's chat. I love getting back to my glory days of agronomy. But uh, for my final question, I like to ask, what is the big issue in Australian ag at the moment? At the moment, it's really staying profitable. We're seeing, especially in this area, we did have a miss last year with the floods. We're still playing top dollar for 
all of our inputs. We're paying top dollar for good staff and we've just got to be really conscious of our numbers, really conscious of making the good years really kick goals and also pushing back with industry and that we're all in this together. We need vibrant communities. We need to keep agriculture. We all need food. We need to keep it as a relevant industry. I have just come back from Singapore for a, a long weekend visiting my best friend and just realising what a how much they value food and land over there. And we just have a plethora of that and I don't think we value it enough as Australians. So I think we need to ensure that people see us as relevant and ensure that we do stay viable because we have a responsibility to look after this land and this environment. I really like that answer. You've talked about the local level of farmers needing to be viable and profitable and that then creates a vibrant community and able to look after the land and lots of layers to that answer, Trin. It's a good answer. I want my kids to come back into agriculture. I don't care if they go and do aeronautical science and they come back and learn and develop drones. I want to be able to provide great research opportunities. I haven't talked about it today, but I work with a little not-for-profit out of Narrabri called Wheat Research Foundation. We lease land to Sydney Uni. We've just spent $16 million building a new research facility up there. And that is to try and embed relevant agriculture in a farming area so we can continue to continue to lead the world in our research and capacity. And just provide a, a destination for those highly skilled, educated people in the bush. Absolutely. And we need to be able to encourage, we need to be like a cement where we encourage in Mexico, which is one of the leading wheat breeding facilities. We need to be able to encourage people from there to go, look, there's great destinations in Australia and it's not a big culture shock for me to come here and I can develop my career. And by doing that, we become a career of choice and we get the best and the brightest to grow food, which is, we all need food every day. Great. Thanks for your time today and thanks for coming on the podcast, Jane. Thanks, Rowan. It's been fun. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources. We've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.